Welcome to the Jeffers Brief, only on Contra Radio Network. You are being conned on a level unprecedented in human history. You are being... That's right. Hello, Intelligentsia. John Jeffers here on the Jeffers Brief. You know... Today we're going to do a little something different. We're going to talk about, uh, let me get up, let's go this way, that way, I don't know. Yeah, I'm still trying to get the green, the green screen thing going. Anyways, uh, today we're going to do a little something different. I want to talk to the preppers, and this is our, our ultimate nightmare here. We're going to talk about nuclear weapons. I want to cover these topics. The topics include what Hollywood thinks a nuclear weapon uh, launch looks like, the procedures thereof, and we will also look at the actual procedure and we want to take a look at some other videos that we'll be putting into the broadcast today. Uh, in case you haven't known, uh, CRN is now a member of the National Association of Digital Broadcasters. That is true. We'll be using the call letters WCRN. You can find it. Not the one in Boston. It'll be WCRN-DB for digital broadcasting. Okay, anyways. Today is Election Day. If you have not voted... It's okay, you still got some time after work today to get to the polling site and vote in person. We shall see which direction our country takes. So, let's get started with this. First of all, we're going to show you from war, the movie War Games, I believe it was 1983 when that movie came out. And we're going to show you the way Hollywood sees it. Then after that, I'm going to show you the way uh, it probably more than likely is. It, and we'll be taking the video from the film, the 1979 film, First Strike. And interestingly enough, it's about an eight-minute video, but it, it's worthwhile. And I'll tell you after we watch it. So, let's get started with this, because it's going to be a little um, involved for today. We are also going to discuss nuclear fallout, and that will follow after we take a look at U.S. launch procedures and what the Russian launch procedures look like. Now, I couldn't find any video of that, and, you know, well, it's the Russians. I mean, come on. So, we will talk about the similarities and the differences between the U.S. and Soviet. Soviet. See, I am a child of the Cold War uh, and the Russian procedures. Some, they're very similar in how it's work, how it works, and there, is, there are some subtle differences so let's let us get started with it the first clip you'll see is from uh, 
and, and I've looked every, I, I try to choose some really interesting um, uh, clips to show you. It's not that easy to find. <laughs> Uh, you will also, uh, some of you are thinking uh, about the movie The Day After, that ABC television film that was broadcast probably, if I remember right, on ABC in the early 80s. And it scared the hell out of America. It really did. So what we're going to see is a lot of uh, the footage from The Day After was taken from the film first strike which is why I chose it so the first part is and then we will uh, come back so stand by and we will get to it okay all right see you in 24 see you tomorrow What was that she was saying now? Oh, so you used to hear a chant all night long. Oh, money, pod, me, home. Oh, money, pod, me, home. Over the plants? Yeah, she'd cup her hands over those seeds and she'd chant by the hour. She grew the most beautiful wandos you ever saw, man. Primo stuff, residency. about you guys. The roads must be a bear, huh? What roads? Visibility. Visibility? Bullshit. You guys haven't been on time for the last six months. Well, I wrote you guys up in the logbook. Yeah, you're Prince Bevan. Good night, gentlemen. So, that was like Sensomelia, right? Sensomelia. This scratch made Thai stick taste like oregano. Lay you out flat, man. Got a red light, sir. What up? Number eight, warhead alarm. Give a thump with your finger. Alarm reset. in two parts. Break, break. Red dash alpha. Stand by to pop a message. Standing by. Romeo, Oscar, November, Charlie, Tango, Tango, Lima, Alpha. Authentication. Two, two, zero, zero, four, zero, Delta, Lima. I have a valid message. Stand by to authenticate. I agree with authentication also, sir. Enter launch code. Entering launch code. Launch order confirmed. Holy shit. 
Target selection complete. Time on target sequence complete. Yield selection complete. Begin countdown. T minus 60. All right, let's do it. Insert launch key. Stand by. Launch key inserted. Roger. On my mark. Rotate launch key to set. Three, two, one. Mark. T minus 50. That's not the correct procedure. Screw the procedure. I want somebody on the goddamn phone before I kill 20 million people. T minus 20. I got nothing here. They might have been knocked out already. Right. On my mark, rotate launch keys to launch. Roger, ready to go to launch. 14, 13, 12, 12 11. 7 6 5 Sir, we have a launch order. 3 Put your hand on the keys, two, sir. 1 Launch. Sir, we are at launch. Turn your keys. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Turn your keys, sir. All right, intelligentsia. You've seen how Hollywood looks at it. Now we'll take a look at First Strike. You may not like the way it ends or, or, or the implications. And before we do it, I was watching uh, Newsmax. Now they have General Blaine Holt. He's a retired Air Force general. Uh, they usually have him on Newsmax. I like General Blaine. And I'll tell you why. Because he calls it like it is. There's no BS, no whitewashing, but no handwringing either. And last week they had him on and they asked him point blank uh, on Newsmax, do you think the American public would tolerate a long, drawn-out war? And, he, and without reservations, without pause, he said, no. The American people have lost something over the years, over the decades. And there's and the implication was the American public wouldn't even support World War II now because it went on for four years. For some reason, we got it into our American psyche that we should fight a war and win it within a month. That's just not reality. It just isn't. So we have, and I'm thinking to myself, there's no way. Now, then I thought about this. If we had the American public today fighting the American Revolution, we'd still be a colony of Great Britain right now. We'd have never won the revolution, just wouldn't.
And when, if you really think about it, we could probably extrapolate and say, you know what? World War II. We'd be speaking German right now. Somewhere along the way, we've become a bunch of pussies. Better way to say it. Yes, there are a lot of people. and I like to call them keyboard warriors. Or all rah, rah, rah. Yes, we have to go out and fight. We have to go out and fight, but not me. Send somebody else. These are the same keyboard warriors who say, this is, if we don't win this election, there's going to be a civil war. Really? You think so? I, I don't think so. I don't. I do not put a lot of faith in keyboard warriors. You go to any social media site, I don't care if it's Gab, USA.life, whatever. Conservative uh, social media site makes no difference. Because the fact of the matter is, we had our, our chance on January 6th, and the federal government effectively neutered the Patriot movement. Oh, they'll send me to prison. I won't get bail. Yeah, it's true. I've seen it. They've effectively neutered any idea or notion that we can go and physically overthrow the, the federal government. Yeah, it makes for good stories, and it makes for, for social media posts. But the truth of the matter is, when people say, well, it's time to do patriot shit, you know what? You can say it, but unless you're going to lead it, I don't see it happening. And that's just reality. That's the fact of it. Okay, let's get on with it. Uh, here is First Strike uh, from 1979. We'll be right back after this. Since the Second World War, the ultimate security of the United States has depended on the awesome destructive power of its strategic nuclear forces to deter thermonuclear war. The strength of this deterrence was based on the calculation that we would inflict terrible destruction in retaliation for a nuclear attack. This doctrine of assured destruction is dependent on the certainty in the mind of an aggressor that we have the will and ability to retaliate. To always maintain this ability, a sufficient portion of our strategic forces must be able to survive any nuclear exchange, even a surprise first strike. Whether America's strategic forces will continue to be able to survive such a disarming, preemptive attack is today a matter of increasing uncertainty. Oscar Control, trip 14-Oscar, on your access. Request entry, Captain Stanton, plus one. I'll vouch for the tent cross. Thank you, sir.
two and four. Bridge after captain, lines two and four are in. Stand easy, please. How's everybody today? Good. Sir, this is the current world intelligence situation, and uh, you might pay particular note to the uh, nuclear submarines off the east and west coast. Okay. And then back here we have the situations that have changed uh, in the last 12 hours worldwide. Okay, I'll complete the review of those after we get airborne. Yes, sir. reporting missile warning this is Beal stand by for confidence reporting SSCO no malfunction missile warning no malfunction missile warning this is Beal confidence is high I repeat confidence is high I want to confirm is this an exercise roger copy this is not an exercise General, this is the senior controller at the command post. We have a warning message that requires your immediate presence. Major Reinhardt, we have 12 sea launch ballistic missiles inbound on the U.S. now. You gonna go out with me tomorrow night? Oh, I thought maybe we'd check out the Hacienda and uh, have a dinner or something. Might even let you treat. <laughs> you don't mind, do you? Hey, I gotta go. Stand by to the message. Stand by. Alpha 7, 8, November, Foxtrot. You're the guy that can't run the checklist. Sir, we've just
just received a message from the SAC Underground Command Post putting all the SAC Force crews in their aircraft with their engines started. Gucci Swift. Okay, go. man. I got the key. Yes, sir. Roger, understand. Major Reinhardt, we have a massive attack against the U.S. nest at this time. ICBMs. Numerous ICBMs. SAC Underground just initiated a positive control launch message. It appears that they uh, discontinued the message halfway through, or there's a detonation, or they've been destroyed. Stand by. Message followed. Alpha, Tango, Golf, Lima. Sir, based on the initial launch call and the uh, bombers and missiles that destroyed, these are the targets that we now have uncovered and no longer have weapons against them. X-ray. Five. Stand by. Message follows. That's a GCS Delta. execution from the president. X-ray. Step one, launch case inserted. Roger. Let's enable the missiles. Program flight switch. Enable. Flight all. LFO. Unlock code inserted. Stand by. Unlock code inserted. Enable switch. Enable. Enable. Thirty-four minutes into the attack, the strategic forces of the United States have suffered a crippling blow. Of the 1,000 Minuteman missiles, only 46 remain operational. Of the 330 B-52 bombers, all but 22 have been destroyed on the ground. Of the 41 ballistic missile submarines, 17 have been destroyed in port, and an unknown number are presumed lost at sea. The attack has been restricted to strategic military targets. Eight million Americans are dead. The United States is given an ultimatum. Any attempt at retaliation will result in the certain annihilation of America's urban population. Nine minutes later, the President orders all surviving U.S. forces to cease fire. All right. What'd you think of that one? You get an idea. And I would think, I hate... I could see this current administration 
Biden's administration, which is probably the weakest administration I can remember in my lifetime, capitulating. Say, so, okay, we're done. We're not going to do anything. I'm not saying nuclear war is fun or it's feasible or anything else. What I'm saying is it is a reality that has to be faced. Now, let us look at U.S. nuclear launch procedures. I found this. I found it to be fairly concise and how it works because we need to know how it works. So we will... So we'll be right back after this. I think it's uh, an overview of U.S. nuclear weapons launch procedures. 1990, you're probably more than familiar with living under the threat of nuclear war. When the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, the specter faded, but it's crept back into the public consciousness again. Currently, the risk isn't as severe as it was during the Cold War, but the nuclear players are also less predictable than they once were. So, anything could change very quickly. But how would it work? Is it true that one person can start a nuclear war? Let's have a look at how the nuclear launch procedure works in the United States. If you want to see more of this, we can also look at how the processes compare in other countries with nuclear capabilities. Let me know in the comments. Okay, timing is important. So let's imagine that the U.S. president's choice to launch a nuclear weapon comes at precisely midnight. Although the president can simply make the decision, it's recommended that he meet with a team of military and civilian advisors to run through options. The meeting happens either in person or through a secure phone connection. The consultation is intended to make sure that the launch isn't based on false information. If the choice is in response to incoming weapons from another country, the meeting might be as short as 30 seconds. But the president can draw it out for a while, if necessary, to a maximum of four minutes. So we'll call that an average of two minutes. Once the president's choice is confirmed, the only person who can call it off is the president. Advisors may try to change his mind or quit in protest, but nobody can legally deny the order. So the most senior military officer in the Pentagon war room must verify that the order did indeed come from the president, even if they're sitting inches apart from each other. So the officer reads a short challenge code to the president. The only correct response code to the challenge, which is called the gold code, is on a card charmingly named the biscuit that the president carries around. The biscuit has an opaque plastic cover that the president must break before reading the codes. The biscuit has several useless and real code responses arranged in columns, and the president must memorize where the real code is among the junk. If the president provides the correct response, the presidential identity is considered confirmed. That all takes less than a minute. The Pentagon prepares a message to send to nuclear launch sites. The coded message contains the target, the timing, and the launch codes. It looks like a 150 character jumble of random alphanumeric characters, but what it contains is vitally important and will change the world. That also takes less than a minute. At the launch sites, commanding officers will open safes to retrieve SAS codes and compare them to the message received from the Pentagon. Obviously, the two sets of codes must match, and they'll only match at the sites that the President wants to use to launch weapons. That's another minute. During peacetime, all American nuclear weapons are aimed at open areas of the ocean, just in case a launch system were ever to go crazy. Any launch sites with matching SAS codes will retrieve launch instructions from coded safes and re-aim the weapons at the target contained in the code. Each launch site has five teams of two officers controlling between 20 and 50 weapons. The five teams work independently and are often separated by a few miles to avoid allowing any of them to influence each other. The teams of officers use information from the SAS codes to unlock the weapons' firing mechanisms. That's approximately three minutes. 
At the precise designated launch time, all five teams of officers at the site will turn and hold launch keys as a final confirmation. Interestingly enough, only two of the five teams are required to confirm the launch, just in case any teams decide to disregard the president's order in an act of mutiny. That's the big reason why the launch teams are kept physically separated from each other. Once the keys are turned, not even the president can call it off. Only a technical failure that affects all of the missiles at a site can prevent the launch. That takes less than a minute. Almost immediately, the nuclear missiles leave toward their target. There's no mechanism in place for canceling or destroying the missiles after launch, so the deal is done, and the world is minutes away from changing forever. This is the process for launching land-based nuclear weapons. Missiles that are launched from submarines take roughly five minutes longer to get out the door, but the process is very similar. So, the answer is yes. One person truly can start a nuclear war in right around 10 minutes. The U.S. president is surrounded by dozens of advisors and officials, but none of them can legally deny a presidential order to launch nuclear weapons. Processes are in place to account for anyone who might choose to refuse his edict, and they can only attempt to change the president's mind in the few minutes available. The process is frighteningly complex and simple at the same time. But in the several decades of American nuclear launch capabilities, it's never happened. Will it ever? Only time will tell. All right. Fairly straightforward on U.S. nuclear launch procedures. Now let's look at the Russian nuclear launch procedures. No, we're not going to answer it. So this is from Reuters, and I thought it was pretty good. Um, there's a 2020 document, and it's called The Basic Principles of State Policy on the Russian Federation on Nuclear Deterrence. It says, the Russian president takes the decision to use nuclear weapons. A small briefcase known as the Shagat is kept close to the president at all times, linking him to the command and control network of Russia's strategic nuclear forces. The Shagat does not contain a nuclear launch button, but rather transmits uh, launch orders to the Central Military Command, also known as the General Staff. So, Putin gives a nuclear order. What happens? Now, the Russian General Staff has access to the launch codes and has two methods of launching nuclear warheads. It can send an authorization code to individual weapons commanders who would then execute the launch procedures. There is also a backup system known as Perimeter which allows the general staff to directly initiate the launch of land-based missiles, bypassing all the immediate com uh, command posts. Now, Putin said at the weekend that new the nation's nuclear forces should be put on high alert. Now, this was written back in, oh, what was it? Uh, March of 2022. So... And you probably do remember when he said they should be put on high alert. So the following day, Russia's defense ministry announced its nuclear missile forces had been placed on enhanced combat duty. The phrase enhanced or special combat duty does not appear in Russia's nuclear doctrine, leaving military experts puzzled over what it might mean. Now, Pavel uh, Podvig, a senior researcher at the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research in Geneva, he said that on Twitter that the order might have activated Russia's nuclear command and control system, essentially opening communication channels for any eventual launch order. Alternative, he said, just might mean the Russians added staff to their nuclear facilities. 
So the 2020 doctrine presents four scenarios which might justify the use of nuclear Russian nuclear weapons. The use of nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction against Russia or its allies. Data showing the launch of ballistic missiles aimed at Russia or its allies. An attack on critical government or military sites that would undermine the country's nuclear forces response actions and the use of conventional weapons against Russia when the very existence of the state is in jeopardy. Uh, the Russians have never used a nuclear weapon in war. The Federation of American Scientists estimate that Russia has 5,977 nuclear warheads, more than any other country. Of these, 1,588 are deployed and ready for use. Its missiles can be fired from land, submarines, and by airplanes. Putin oversaw a coordinated test of Russia's nuclear forces on February 19th, shortly before ordering troops into Ukraine. So they do have that capability. Is, I don't, I'm not sure if it would be prudent, but they're, it seems like their chain of command is pretty much the similar to ours. All right, where do we stand now? I want to talk to you about, let's assume, we've got to do a lot of assumptions here, people. Nuclear war has taken place. You have survived the initial onslaught. Basically, you're alive, maybe your family's alive to pick up whatever pieces may or may not be um, left. So, um, I did find some articles. I'm going to share the information with you. Superprepper.com is one. Um, and of course, there's Ask a Prepper. Let's start off with that one. And it's and you have to figure you have to have nuclear protection supplies already, because after the detonations begin, eh, supply chain isn't going to come back for probably not in your lifetime. So it would behoove one to have these supplies on hand and ready to go. So if you value preparedness, you probably have most of the, of the surprise you'll, you'll need to survive pretty much anything that befall you. But the fact is, while there's a huge variety of potential disasters, most of them will land in the same problems at a local level. Disruption of utilities, collapsed food supply chain, and the breakdown of law and order. If you're equipped to survive the aftermath of a natural disaster, you're also equipped to survive a general strike or what's widespread rioting. Nuclear disasters are different. Whether it's a power station meltdown or a nuclear attack, as soon as atomic power enters the mix, things change. Imagine all the usual problems like empty shelves at the store, nothing happening when you turn on a light switch or faucet, and gangs of unprepared people desperately trying to steal your stuff. Now, Let's imagine this whole mess has been lightly sprinkled with radioactive dust, also known as fallout. 
What makes post-nuclear survival so complicated is that your priority is still going to be dealing with the short-term everyday problems like security, water, and food. Neglect those, you're not going to make it. However, neglect the nuclear danger, and you're not going to make it either. It'll just take a little longer to become obvious, and by that time it's too late. So the big problem with nuclear, nuclear radiation is that it can't be detected by human senses, and its effects are cumulative. Now, a small dose of radiation may be pretty harmless on its own, but a series of small doses can add up to a lethal one. And every exposure to radiation does some cell damage, and your body will only partly recover. If you don't give it some time between doses, you can soon find yourself getting seriously ill. This means it's important to do everything you can to minimize the exposure. So, how do you protect yourself from something you can't see or feel? That's why surviving a nuclear emergency needs a few specialist additions to your emergency gear. If, if you have the right items in your stockpile, you'll be able to avoid highly radioactive areas. See how much radiation you've been exposed to. Protect yourself from further exposure and clean up any contamination that's gotten onto you. So, here's a list of the top nuclear emergency survival items that you, as a prepper, should have in your supply catch. First one's a Geiger counter. Now, a Geiger counter measures the ionizing effects of particles and waves. Uh, before we go any further, Ionizing radiation is the danger. Gamma waves. Gamma radiation is bad juju coming down on you. What ionizing or gamma rays do to you, and this is, I'm going to put it real succinctly, it liquefies your insides. There will come a point in your radiation poisoning after you've been feeling really bad, you'll start to feel better. It's called a latency. You'll start to feel better. You go, oh, God, whatever it was, it's passed. I'm okay. And then you die. All right. So a Geiger counter measures the ionizing effects of particles and waves. So it shows what the current, radi current radiation level is. Usually it displays on a dial, and many of them give an audible alert, normally a clicking sound that speeds up as radiation levels rise. Use a Geiger counter to warn you if you're moving into a radiation hotspot. If you're in a shelter, turn it on regularly to warn you if radiation levels are rising. If they are, use the counter to search for where the hazard is getting in. Traditional Geiger counters have separate measuring and display units connected by a cable. These are often used in nuclear power stations and by emergency response teams. They're bulky and expensive, though. For personal use, a handheld unit is easier to carry and more affordable. Recently, compact Geiger counters have become a lot cheaper, and you could pick up a good one for less than 200 bucks. Many of these are based on Soviet military models with a more modern casing and display added. So they're going to be robust and reliable. Second is a dosimeter. I have both, a Geiger and dosimeters. Now, a Geiger counter measures the current level of radiation. A dosimeter 
measures the total dose received, which is important because of the way radiation damage accumulates. During the Cold War, the British Army issued a personal dosimeter that could be worn like a watch, but soldiers couldn't read their own. The kit needed to read the dose was carried by section commanders who would check their men's radiation doses regularly. If your dosimeter was checked and then you suddenly got volunteered for Operation Certain Death, it was pretty easy to guess that you'd taken a lethal dose and the Army wanted to get some more use out of you before radiation sickness sets in. Modern civilian dosimeters are a lot more user-friendly. These are electronic versions available, but they aren't guaranteed or even very likely to survive NEMP. Stop here. Remember, it is the strategy is to use an EMP at the very outset of a nuclear exchange. You knock out. You try. You try to knock out the command and control systems by denying them the use of electricity. Period. Many military. Uh, I shouldn't say, some military equipment has been hardened against EMP. For example, uh, the old, uh, perhaps you remember the aircraft from the Vietnam War area called the Intruder. And what they did with that is they lined, they lined the canopy and the inside of the aircraft with the solid gold that would uh, supposedly negate the effects of an EMP. All right, anyways, EMP, it would be an airburst high above the United States. There you go, all right. So the mo let's get back to it. The most reliable option is a simple wallet card with strips of radiation sensitive film on it. Each strip is calibrated to turn dark at certain total dose. So you can easily keep track of how much exposure you've had. These cards are less than 20 bucks on Amazon, and everyone in your group or house should carry one. It's inevitable that things will need to be done that expose someone to radiation, and dosimeters let you make sure nobody is headed toward the dangerous total doses. Let's talk about iodine tablets. You should have these already. Nuclear fallout is particles of dust that have been irradiated and mixed with materials from the bomb. It just isn't plutonium dust. There are many different radioactive substances in it, and one of the most dangerous to humans is iodine-131. It tends to collect in the thyroid and then sit there emitting radiation. The solution is to predose the thyroid with harmless, non-radioactive iodine. It only has limited capacity, and if it's already packed up with all the iodine it can hold, the iodine-131 won't be absorbed. What you need, what you need, is a supply of potassium iodine tablets, also known as IOSAT tablets, I-O-S-A-T. IOSAT tablets deliver safe iodine at a controlled dose, and it's been approved by the FDA for use after radiation emergencies. Why do you think the government is stocking up on this stuff? Potassium iodide tablets will give you good protection if, if, you start taking them as soon as there's a nuclear emergency. But if the environment is already contaminated, you could still pick up some radioactive iodine. If you think a nuclear attack is likely, start taking tablets before it happens to get maximum benefits. The tablets are completely safe for anyone who isn't specifically allergic to iodides. 
if you can't get iocyte tablets, try to add a lot of iodine-rich foods to your diet. Good sources of the chemical include fish, dairy, and eggs. Use iodized salt when you're cooking. Now let's talk about diet supplements, as well as iodine tablets. There are other dietary supplements that will help you resist the effects of radiation. None of them as big as difference as iodides, but they're still worth doing. Survival can depend on shaving every bit of radiation exposure you can. So here are some good ones. Activated charcoal. This is a bit of a miracle substance. In a filter, it can help remove fallout. As a diet supplement, it can trap radioactive substances in your body and help eliminate them before they're absorbed into your organs. Remember, we talked about gamma rays and ionizing radiation? There you go. Calcium supplements. There are radioactive forms of calcium, and they're often found in fallout. Taking supplements will help to block them from being absorbed into your teeth and bones. Calcium can block strontium-90, which is a very dangerous element in fallout. Vitamin E. This is a chelating agent. In other words, it binds to other chemicals and helps your body remove them. Chelation therapy is a common form of crank medicine, and some people claim it will work with detox diets and other forms of woo. It won't. What it will do is help your body get rid of heavy metals much more quickly, and some of the worst substances and fallout are radioactive heavy metals. This can also bind to heavy metals and help your body eliminate them faster. The chances are you'll end up ingesting some fallout unless you can stay in a military-grade shelter. The quicker you get it out of your system, the less radiation you'll absorb. Anything, anything that claims to be homeopathic or holistic remedy for radiation is snake oil. But the cranks who sell it expect to make a lot of money from frightened people trying to be prepared for the worst. Spend your money on these basic supplements instead. They actually work. Next, let's talk about water filters. Now, after a nuclear attack or a power station accident, the only water you can rely on, rely on is what you already have stored in sealed containers. Fallout will quickly contaminate lakes and rivers and won't take long to make its way into groundwater. Once it's in the water, it's very difficult to get rid of, and eventually, eventually, your supply is what? Going to run out. Boiling contaminated water won't help. Fallout isn't like bacteria or virus that can be destroyed by heat. It's a chemical problem. Luckily, there are ways you can remove most, but probably not all, of the radiation substances from contaminated water. Most of the danger will be particles of fallout suspended in the water. A standard filter will get rid of these. Although it's radioactive, it's still basically dust and the filter will take it out. You need to be careful, though, because fallout will accumulate in the filter, and it will quickly become a radiation hazard. So you change filters every 10 gallons and dispose of them. Either bury them, or if you're in a shelter, throw them outside. You can use a commercial filter jug or homemade filters. As long as it's fine enough to remove any dust, it will do the job. Unfortunately, some radioactive isotopes will dissolve in water. And if they're dissolved, a standard filter won't get them out. An activated charcoal filter will be more effective. 
Now, a large percentage of the dissolved chemicals will be caught in its pores. It won't be 100% effective, but every atom you can remove from the water will help. An alternative spe specifically designed for radiation hazards is the Seychelles filter jug. This works like a normal filter jug, but the filter cartridges have extra inserts to absorb some of the most dangerous radioactive substances. It's up to 99.99% effective against radioactive metals like plutonium and uranium, and will also get rid of a high percentage of other chemicals. In fact, it can bring fallout contaminated water down to near normal radiation levels. Just remember that. Like any other filter, the cartridges themselves will soon become radioactive and will need to be disposed of. If you need a portable filter, Seychelles also makes a bottle version. This is just as effective, but it, it filters the contents as you pour them out. So it could be uh, carrying a bottle of radioactive water around you. Next, got to talk about gas mask. Inhaled fallout is probably the most dangerous because it gets into your delicate lungs and bombards them with radiation. A gas mask will keep it out. Even a bandana wrapped around your face will help reduce the risk. But for the best protection, get a military gas mask with the military gas mask filter. The best military gas mask is the Scott Safety General Service Respirator or the GSR. This is British and most military experts think the UK is the leader in NBC defense. It's available in four different sizes with one being the largest size and uh, size two fits most average sized people. If you can't find a GSR then its predecessor the Avon S10 is a good alternative. Both these masks use very effective filter casters that will completely remove all fallout from the air before you breathe it in. If you're outside in a fallout contaminated area, you'll need to change casters every 24 hours. And the used ones will be radioactive. The S10 can use any canister with a NATO 40 millimeter thread. And there are plenty of these on eBay. Even a life expired canister will protect against fallout. It's their effectiveness against chemical weapons that deteriorates. So you can stock up on cheap older ones. Most U.S. military masks like the M40 and M50 will not take NATO canisters and the U.S. canisters can be hard to find. That is true. Let's talk about protective clothing. Fallout that gets on your skin or is trapped in your clothes will also be giving out radiation. It's best to keep it as far away from your skin as possible. And you can do that by wearing an outer layer that won't catch dust. Again, a military NBC suit is perfect. Get the British Mark IV suit if you can with the current U.S. mop suit as a second choice. If you can't get hold of NBC suits, don't panic. Any waterproof outer layer will help you shed radioactive dust that would get trapped in normal clothing. Disposable rain pouches are great. They're small, light, and cheap enough that you can buy dozens of them. Wear one every time you go outside in the fallout. Then as soon as you get back to your shelter, throw it out the door. Rubber boots won't pick up as much uh, fallout as normal shoes and are easier to clean. If you have to, wrap your footwear in heavy plastic bags to keep the dust off. Rubber gloves will keep fallout off your hands, which is important if you're working. Dust can get into small cuts or scrapes and be trapped in your body. 
It can even get under your nails. So cleaning up. If, if you've been exposed to fallout, you can shower. Do it. But don't scrub yourself as they can work the dust into your skin. Just let the water wash it away. Otherwise, gently wipe down all exposed skin with towelettes. Normal wet wipes are fine. Radiac wash towelettes are more expensive, but specifically designed for treating radioactive contamination. Again, don't scrub yourself, just wipe away the dust. Wipe it away from your body. Don't do this. That's bad news. If you do this, bad news. Wipe it away. Wipe it away. There you go, okay? A repair kit. A well-built shelter will protect you from fallout, but what if it's damaged by a nuclear blast or your ventilation system fails? If radiation or actual fallout is getting in, you need to stop it. That means having basic materials to carry out repairs. The minimum you need is heavy plastic sheet and duct tape. Add some sandbags too. If your Geiger counter shows that radiation is coming through a wall, you can add some thickness with sandbags. That's going to mean some spending some time outside, but better to do that than to be constantly exposed inside. If your shelter has a HEPA filtration system, make sure you have a stock of spare filters. These can get blocked up by heavy dust or damaged by blast, so you need to have replacements. Also make sure you have a reliable power supply that won't be affected by EMP. An unpowered backup ventilation system is good to have but it adds more openings than can be damaged. So you need the materials to replace or block any broken sections. Direct radiation from a nuclear weapon isn't a major worry, and indirect radiation can easily be avoided by not walking near the craters. The danger area is about twice as wide as the actual crater. But fallout is a serious hazard. It will take weeks for its radiation to fall to safer levels. And until it does, you need the equipment and knowledge to protect yourself as much as possible, unless, unless you have a fully sealed underground bunker. It's unrealistic to expect to pick up no radiation at all. But some pretty simple gear will let you cut it into minimum, leaving you and your family in good shape to start getting on with your lives once it's safe to come out again. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. Oh. So... Let's talk about this. This is important. Everything I talk to you about is important. Now let's talk about this. How do you protect yourself from radiation poison? We talked a little bit about it. In the event of a nuclear disaster, there's only so much that you're going to be able to do. So by keeping updated and current with the news and advisories, it's possible to avoid naturally occurring radiation in case of a man-made disaster. However, it's best to remain calm and remember the three important factors avoiding radiation. Distance. Get as much distance between uh, yourself and the nuclear fallout particles. Shielding. The heavier and denser the materials are, thick walls, concrete, bricks, between you and the fallout particles, the better it is. If possible, go inside a building or go home immediately if possible. Now an underground area such as a home or office building basement offers more protection than first floor of a build up of a building. If there's no basement, seek shelter under a roof uh, near interior walls. 
Flat roofs collect fallout particles, therefore the top floor is not a good choice, nor is the floor adjacent to a neighboring flat roof. And number three is time. You have to stay in protected shelter for at least 12 to 24 hours after a nuclear blast. Fallout radiation loses its intensity fairly rapidly. In time, you'll be able to leave the fallout shelter. Radioactive fallout poses the greatest threat to people during the first two weeks. During those weeks, it declines to about 1% of its initial radiation level. So, there's some more, there's some more information for you. Uh, now, let's talk about another issue for surviving. Super Prepper, how to survive nuclear fallout. Now, this is going to be interesting. Uh, how does nuclear fallout affect the human body? We're gonna, you have to understand the physiology if you're going to have any hopes of combating it. So a nuclear blast is dangerous on several levels. First, there's the initial thermal blast, basically a fast-moving shockwave of heat and light. And that fries everything in the immediate vicinity, probably to within 2 to 11 kilometers. In addition, there's a great deal of nuclear radiation released, which can have far-reaching effects. This radiation is one threat to your health from a nuclear blast that you can actually mitigate. There are three main types of radiation released in a nuclear blast that we need to worry about. These include alpha radiation, and this is the easiest to deal with as it is stopped by almost any material, even paper. Your skin is an effective barrier as well, although care must be taken not to ingest it or let it enter the body through cuts or the respiratory system. The second is beta radiation. This is also stopped by barriers, although not as easy as alpha radiation. It can enter the body through ingestion, breathing, even through the eyes. And then there's the dreaded gamma. Gamma radiation. Now these rays can penetrate the skin and other thick materials. This is unfortunately also the most deadly form of radiation, causing radiation sickness as well as long as long-term effects such as thyroid disease and cancer. Uh, I want to make it clear here. Even after the Hiroshima bombing in World War II and Nagasaki bombing, there were people who survived the bombings. And yes, it is true. Some came down with thyroid disease and cancer. So just because you're in a locale that got, that got hit with a nuclear strike, as long as you're not within that blast, that immediate heat and blast radius, you could very well survive a nuclear attack. So, your first line of protection. So, what if you? So, what should you do if you suddenly need the protect, uh, protection from nuclear fallout? These steps could save your life. First decision is to whether you need to shelter in place or evacuate. Local authorities will offer advice based on your area and current weather patterns if you can actually get a hold of them and listen to them if the EMP hasn't wiped out your emergency radios. If you cannot run radiation, that is usually your best bet. However, roads may be literal death traps if traffic is so, so congested you cannot move uh, as quickly as needed. So you've got to have several exit routes. That's essential. 
If you leave, you will likely be safe. If your area has nuclear fallout shelter, this is likely the best place to go. Unfortunately, you have to share with other people. Many areas have shelters designed for this purpose, often dating back to the Cold War era. You should know ahead of time whether your area has these, where they are, and how to get there quickly. Bear in mind, you're going to be dealing with other people. Here, I'm going to, open, I'm going to, I'm going to go there. I'm going to open the can of worms. A little mission creep here. You go to a fallout shelter and say, uh, you got to share it with 20 other people. How many of those 20 other people are on psychotic medications or on mental medications? You, you're going to be trapped there with them for at least two weeks. Something to think about. If you can see the cloud, you should be moving away. Your best strategy is to travel from one safe shelter to another until you're good and far away. But what if you can't leave safely? Then you need to shelter in place. Now, the situation becomes more complicated. Some people have nuclear shelters of their own, but this is rare. If you have to remain in a shelter that is not designed to protect from nuclear fallout, there are ways to increase your protection. Okay? You will want as much of a barrier between your body and the outside world as possible. Gamma rays can penetrate materials up to four inches thick. So a basement or interior room is your best bet. Immediately move all needed supplies such as food, water, and radio into your planned shelter. It is best if you store needed items in this shelter to reduce the time it takes to prepare. You may only have a few minutes before deadly amounts of radiation diffuse into your area. Next, improve your barrier. Use duct tape and plastic. Cover all windows, doors, faucets, vents, plumbing fixtures, and other ways for outside air to enter your shelter. Consider stacking bricks, bags of sand, or even household items such as books in front of these vulnerable areas. So you got to gather your necessities. Water. you got to have water. Your water is going to likely safe immediate, will be safe immediately but will quickly become contaminated and unusable. If possible, prepare ahead of time. Have your store, your emergency uh, water stored beforehand. And plan it to be sheltered in your sheltered area for as long as possible. You have to have a good first aid kit. We've talked about this. If you don't have one, get one. And I'm not talking about the one you get Menards. You need a professional EMT first aid kit. Ventilation. It's going to be essential in small space. You'll need two small air vents. Should be fitted with filters, preferably ones designed to keep radiation out. Although radiation can be carried in the air, you will die much more quickly from suffocation than from nuclear particles. We talked about the iodide pills. Now, potassium iodide pills should be taken as soon as after the blast as possible to help prevent damage to the thyroid gland. Adults, including pregnant and breastfeeding women, as well as children weighing over 150 pounds, you have to take 130 milligrams. Children between 3 and 18 years of age who are 150 pounds or less, they take 65 milligrams. Infants and children under 3 years old, 16 milligrams.
it is generally recommended that people take a single dose of potassium iodide as soon as possible. Most people will need more. However, if the radiation lasts in high levels longer than normal due to weather patterns, the authorities may recommend that adults and older children take a second dose at a later time. Again, again, my friends, that's if you can even make contact with any type of uh, government authority. Uh, all right. So how long should you shelter after a nuclear blast? I mean, well, because of unpredictable weather in your area, having a radiation detector can be helpful. We talked about that. Face masks that provide a barrier against inhaling radiation may be necessary. We talked about that. In general, people who are far enough away from the blast to escape immediate death, as well as upwind from the event, will, should be able to leave their shelter in around 72 hours. If you're in this category, you should plan on immediately evacuating the area. Although levels may not be high enough to cause radiation sickness immediately, long-term exposure to lower moderate levels of nuclear fallout is dangerous. Or it could be a few weeks. Now, if you're downwind, your area may be exposed to higher doses of radiation. This will, take, this will then take longer to dissipate. And you may have to shelter in place for weeks before it's safe to leave. Again, the best way of knowing when it is safe to leave is to wait an all clear from the authorities, assuming any of them are still alive or can communicate through radio. Keeping a wind-up radio or other means of communication with the outside world is essential. Do not assume you have electricity, functioning telephone service, or a cell phone grid in the weeks after a nuclear blast. It, well, I suppose you could keep an, your cell phone and, and make a nice paperweight, I suppose. Uh, these events can damage the infrastructure for months or even years, or even decades. So... The best way to protect yourself when you are cleared to leave is to avoid touching anything in your environment. Cover your eyes and mouth if possible. Treat everything around you as contaminated. The levels of radiation are likely still quite high, even though not enough to kill you. Reducing your interaction with the environment and amount of time in a contaminated area is essential to your long-term health. If you have hazmat suits or respirators, this part of the process is much easier. Simply don your choice of protection and flee immediately. So these are going to be the necessary items for nuclear fallout. And it's ideal for every American to have the appropriate fallout shelter or access to a government one in order to survive nuclear fallout. Note, who knows if you have any supplies in your local fallout shelter. If they are there, how old are they? Are they still usable? Has anyone even freaking checked? Anyway, if you, it's rare, to, if you have your own, well, never mind. Look, if you don't have this kind of a shelter, you can still be prepared to survive nuclear fallout by having the following items. Heavy plastic sheeting and tape for covering windows and other outlets to the world. A 30-day supply of food and water for each family member. Remember, water rule, one gallon per person per day. 
a heat source if your area requires this in certain seasons. We talked about the first aid kit, potassium iodide for at least two doses for everyone in your household. Hazmat pseudorespirator for everyone else in your household. Lighting such as flashlight or lanterns. An extra change of clothes to be worn outside the sheltered area and changed before re-entering. Can openers, knives or other tools. Sanitation kit including toilet paper, feminine hygiene products and a way to dispose of human waste. A radio that does not require electricity. It's, they're out there. Extra batteries, various forms of entertainment. <laughs> Items needed for children and pets. Don't forget your pets. Personal protection from crazy people, zombies, and anyone else who may decide to invade your safe haven. It may seem excessive, however, it is the only way to guarantee you are safe in the event of a nuclear blast to be prepared. These items may make a difference between life and a long, painful death. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about this. The radius of a nuclear blast and its resulting fallout depends on the size of the bomb, how it is detonated in the air or on the ground, and various other factors. Here are a few examples to gain a better understanding of how your distance from the center of the blast may affect your chances of survival. The name of the bomb, for example, would be the Davy Crockett, 20 tons. There's a 100% death rate, 66 feet, that's 20 meters. Most buildings collapse at 197 feet, that's 60 meters. First degree radiation burns, 394 feet, or 120 meters. The Fat Man Nagasaki bomb, which is 20 kilotons. Uh, the 100% death rate was 142 yards. Most buildings collapse within 831 yards. And first degree radiation burns, 1300 yards. Now we have the Russians, the Tsar bomb, that's 100 megatons. Uh, the 100% death rate is 3 miles, 4.8 kilometers. Most buildings collapse at 19 miles, that's 31 kilometers. And first degree radiation burns, 45 miles or 72 kilometers. Now, the immediate blast zone of well-known nuclear bombs, Fat Man, that hit Nagasaki, killed over 70,000 people. And you look at how small it is compared to the Tsar bomb. Note the Davy Crockett bomb is not depicted, but is approximately 1,000 times smaller than the Fat Man bomb. So let's talk about the treatment for radiation sickness. If you are exposed to high levels of radiation, take note of how much time passes before you start feeling the effects of radiation sickness. These effects are usually first noticed in the form of diarrhea and vomiting. The quicker you experience radiation sickness, generally the higher levels of radiation you are exposed to. Unfortunately, not much can be done to treat radiation sickness in the field. Managing the symptoms is the best that can be done without seeing a specialist in a hospital setting. And you can bet they'll either not be existent or, or they'll be so overwhelmed they can't help you anyways. So the best steps to take are to limit further, any further exposure, decontaminate the outside of the body, and treat any radiation burns. Decontamination can be accomplished by removing or discarding any clothes 
that are, was being worn at the time of exposure. This will eliminate approximately 90% of the radioactive particles that are on the outside of the body. Showering will remove additional particles. Removing both these steps, uh, I mean, sorry, performing both these steps as soon as possible after exposure to radiation is extremely important to reduce the chances of external radiation burns. If you're exposed to lethal levels of radiation, death will usually occur between two days and two weeks after exposure. So the conclusion is this. Many Americans prefer to ignore the potential threat of nuclear exposure. It is nonetheless a present danger. Preparing for this catastrophic event will not guarantee your safety, but it will increase your chance for survival. There. All right. This is what I think. This is what we got going. All right. I'm John Jeffers. Thank you again for listening and watching the Jeffers Brief. I hope you found this informative. Until next time, get your preps in order. And as a final note, truckers are reporting diesel fuel shortages. Not shortages, they can't even get it. In Oklahoma and Missouri. I don't know how reliable it is, but that's the word I'm getting. And So prep today, live tomorrow. Get your preps in order. We'll talk to you then. Be safe, be alert, be vigilant.